Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Hear the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Last week I introduced the first of the mottos that summarize the essential truths that were not new, but were rather rediscovered 500 years ago in the Reformation in Europe in the 16th century. And the first motto we saw was what? It was sola in Latin, sola scriptura, or only scripture. Only scripture. And we found that what that means is that the Bible alone is the infallible word of God. Uh, the church tradition is not infallible. Our personal impressions are not infallible. But God's word, the Bible, the written word, is his infallible word alone. Today we're going to look at another of the solas, or the onlys, if we could call them that, the onlys. Uh, but first of all, you might think, now wait a minute, didn't we already see an only last week? How many onlys can there be, right? It would seem to seem like, at first glance, how many onlys should there be? One, right? And we're talking about five onlys. How does that work? Well, um, the way it works is this. Each of the onlys answers a different question. Uh, related question, but each of these only statements uh, answers a, a different question about salvation. Consider these statements. My car runs only on gasoline, only by internal combustion, only on the road, only on Michelin tires, and only for transportation. That all makes sense, doesn't it? It tells you much about my car. It tells you that it's not electric, it's not hybrid, it's not a race car, uh, it's a uh, not a luxury car, it's a transportation vehicle that runs on gas by internal combustion. It's not an off-road car either. So I've told you a lot, but I've used five different onlys. But each of those addresses a somewhat different question. So we've addressed one question already. How can we hear from God? Where can we know God's will for us? And the answer to that is... Only Scripture. Scripture alone. Now we're going to answer another question, and that is a question that all of the other questions, the other four questions will will address uh, in some way or another, and that is, why? Why did God do anything for us? 
We find in the Bible that this is a message of good news, a message about God intervening in our world and in our lives. And what we're going to be doing is asking questions about about that intervention in our lives. And the first question is the simple question, why? What what was the cause of him of him intervening in love in our lives? So first of all, what is the infallible authority scripture alone? And then the second question is why God intervened and intervened in human history on our behalf? And the answer, as you've already picked up from all of the songs we have sung today, the answer is because of his grace. Because of His grace. Now, in order to study grace, in order to understand grace, we need to see that there was a problem first. Because grace is a solution to a problem. And Paul, in the starkest and most uncomfortable of terms, he describes for us the problem in verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. And he describes, first of all, the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles are the non-Jews. He will address the Jews in a second, but first of all he talks about the Gentiles but he, because he says, in, in verse 1 he says, and you, and you, and we will find out that he's not simply saying you Ephesians, but he's saying you Ephesians who are Gentiles. We know, we know. I'll tell you why in a second, we'll see why, because there's a little bit of a contrast. Um, or, not contrast, is an inclusion in just a minute. But he says to the Gentiles, and I assume that that's, most of us, that most of us are not from Jewish extraction, some of us may be, but most of us, and many of us may have Jewish blood uh, to some degree or another, but, but we are not Jewish by heritage for the most part. And so we fit in here. And how does he describe the Gentiles? He says that we were dead. So he's not mincing any words here. He comes out and just says it. You Gentiles were dead. And deadness is a state of being without life, separated from life. And he's saying, this is how you were, Gentiles. You were separated from the source of life. You were separated from God. You were without God. And so you had no real life in this world. This is probably an offensive way to describe us, because we all like to think of ourselves as, well, nobody's perfect. Yes, there are some problems there. There's some things that I need to work on, certainly. Uh, sick, perhaps. Maybe needing some healing. Maybe needing some rehabilitation. But dead? Certainly not as bad as those people over there. And Paul just cuts through all of that and he says, No, no, it's worse than you imagined. You were dead. And then he explains the reasons for the deadness. And he says, still in verse 1, He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And then he goes on to say, these were not occasional slip-ups. These were a customary way of living. Verse 2, in which you once walked. walked." And walking is a metaphor that Paul often uses for manner of life. He says, you were, this was your customary way of living. What was your customary way of living? Your customary way of living was trespasses and sins. And that's where the deadness came from. And in 
following our own trespasses and sins, he goes on and describes, he says, following the course of this world, you are just getting swept along by, by the way of this world, and then it gets worse. He says, not only that, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and this is unusual language here, uh, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It, it's a very unusual language, and it's not customary of Paul to, to use this language anyway, but it's not hard to figure out about whom he's speaking, is it? Who is this? This is the evil one. This is Satan. This is the adversary. This is the devil. And he's saying, now, in addition to that, Verse 3, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And so now we have a triad here uh, that's sweeping us along. We have the way of the world, we have uh, the adversary, the enemy, and we have our own passions that have caused us problems. And you've probably heard, maybe heard, about the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they're all here. And he's saying, that's what we were doing. We were following the world, we were following the evil one, and we were following our own, our own unbridled passions. And here, if you look at verse 3, he brings the Jews in. Because first he says in verse 1, and you, and then he says in verse 3, and guess what? We Jewish people, we who have the law, we who were God's called people, chosen from all time, among whom, he says, we all once lived. And then he includes the Jews in another subtle way as well. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The body and the mind. Because if you look at the Gentiles, and if you want to sort of generalize here, the Gentiles were good, we were good, are good, about carrying out the passions of the flesh, about the body, excesses of the body. But the Jews, at least the devout ones like Paul, were much more careful about the excesses of the body. Paul walked very, very carefully, and he was very, uh, very careful to avoid uh, physical immorality and sexual immorality and so on and excess drunkenness, whatever it might be, the, the passions of the body that become unbridled. But he includes not only the passions of the body, but what else? The passions of the mind. And that was Paul's downfall. He was arrogant in his mind. He despised other people, but they weren't as good as he was. And so he was given over to the passions of the mind. And so this covers humanity and it covers the excesses of the body and it covers also the excesses of the mind. And then he concludes and says, and we, including the the Jews, which would be shocking to them to read this, he says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, no Jew would have identified himself that way. He would have said, no, we're children of Abraham. We're children of Isaac. We're children of Jacob. And and Paul says, no, my friends. He says, the Gentiles given over to their passions, the Jews given over to our passions, all of us were children. That is subject to wrath. Whose wrath? Well, obviously, God's wrath. God's righteous anger. So he's saying, these sins and trespasses that we've committed, they are subject to God's righteous anger. Judgment. We are liable to judgment. We are sons and daughters of judgment. That's the bad news. 
And it's very, very bad. And he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't mince any words. He doesn't pull any punches. He explains exactly how humanity is. And that is the darkness against which the brightness of verse 4 shines. Because he begins it by saying, But God. But God. If we have understood how bad how critical our situation was. We, we are crying out and saying, what then? And Paul comes along and says, but God. But God. He intervenes. He acts. And He does something for us. But before we see what He does for us, we need to remember what God did for His own Son, Jesus. The Bible presents Jesus as God's Son. He's fully human, but He's also God's Son at the same time. And if we remember in the the New Testament, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in those Gospels, we read a story about Jesus. And it tells us that He was born, that He lived, and that He died. Now, so far, that would describe any human, right? Born, lived, died. Now, there's something remarkable about his birth, about his life, and about his death. That's all remarkable, but but that fits the narrative of humanity, doesn't it? Born, lived, and died. But his story in all of the Gospels is remarkable and unique because it says that after he died, God did three things for him. One, he made him alive again. Two, he raised him up so that he lived again, he walked, he breathed, he ate, he conversed. And three, he raised him all the way up to the heavenly places and seated him there. Seated him there at God's own right hand. So in addition to the normal human story, born, lived, died, we add he was made alive again, raised up, and seated with God. Now, that's important. Because when we see what God does for us, we find that He does for us just what He did for Jesus. And I want you to see in verse 6, we're going to go back and look at verse 4, but at the end of verse 6, there's an expression. And it is an expression that you find all through the letters of Paul and in other places as well. It ends with, in Christ Jesus. That's how verse 6 ends. In Christ Jesus. And then if you look at the end of verse 7, it says, In Christ Jesus. And then there are other expressions in here, With Christ, with Him. And this is all through the New Testament. And this is the, the idea of unity or union with Christ. And uh, the teaching is this, that some people are united to Christ. And they are found in Christ. And so the idea is before God, before God, those who are identified with Christ are found in Him. So when God looks at those who are in Christ, He finds them never separated from Christ, but always in identification and union with Christ. And so now, this prepares us, this idea of being so identified with Christ before God, this prepares us for the idea that Paul is going to give us, the solution to our problem in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did He do? Made us alive together with Christ, 
by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying everything he did for Christ, he did for those who are in Christ. See, this is the solution to our problem. He says, we were dead. What does a dead person need? Does a dead person need some medicine? Does a dead person need a, a, a hand? Somebody maybe to, to push them a little bit? Or to help them to stand up? Uh, maybe some crutches? No. What's a dead person need? A dead person needs a resurrection. A dead person needs to be raised up from the dead. And, and, and where are we going to find that? If we really were dead, where are we going to find a new life? Well, in the one whom God raised to newness of life. So, we need to be in Christ so that we might be in the one who was given life, raised, and seated, so that when He went through all those things, we were, as it were, hanging onto His coattails and, and going along with Him and being given new life, raised up, and seated in the heavenly places. Now, Paul calls this, Paul calls this being saved. If you look at verse 5, he introduces this language. It says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then there's something of a parenthesis there. By grace you have been saved. Now, this word saved, we would say, from what? You have to be saved from something. And the good thing is we already read verses 1 to 3. So we already have an idea from which we are being saved. From what are we being saved? Well, we are being saved from our sins and trespasses. We're being saved from the clutches of the evil one. We're being saved from following along the course of this world. We're being saved from death. We're being saved from God's wrath. Now that's a full orb salvation. All of the problems that we saw that we have, by grace, he says, you have been saved. Now here we're finally getting to our question. That's the what. Now we're going to ask the why. Why did God do this? Why would He do something like this? And Paul used various words to describe why He did it. Go back to verse 4. But God, being rich in what? Mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made alive, us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And then if you go down to verse 7, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness. So we have four different words. We have mercy, we have, uh, we have uh, kindness, we have love, and then He hones particularly on this last one that we're going to focus on today is grace. And we're going to try to figure out in this context what grace is. He says in verse 5, He says... 
kind of parenthetically, by grace you have been saved. And then he gets to verse 8, and he says it again, and now he fills it out. For by grace you have been saved, and now we have the rest of the explanation. Let's read verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We'll stop there, and then we'll go on to verse 10 in just a second. So from this, we can put together what grace is, and from this context we can put together what grace is. A good definition of God's grace from this context is this. God's favor toward sinners. God's favor toward sinners. Now some people define grace as God's unmerited favor, but that doesn't go quite far enough. Because it just says that it's not merited that it's not deserved, and that's certainly true, but this passage points out, this text points out that it not only is it not merited, but actually what's merited is exactly the opposite. So if we had the right terminology to, to, to explain it, we'd say it's contra-merited, or it's, it's anti-merited, not only un, but it's the opposite of merited. And to say that more, perhaps more grammatically correctly, it is God's favor toward sinners. It's God's favor toward those who deserve wrath rather than love. Now, verses 8 and 9, to say that salvation is by grace means that it comes altogether from God. In 8 and 9, he affirms some things and he denies other things. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it affirms that this grace comes from God, not our undoing, not from us, that it is received through faith, not through any effort or works on our part, and the result is we can't boast, because we didn't do anything. We simply received it. It was a gift. So when you receive a gift... And somebody says, oh, I really like that. You received a new watch or tie or a pair of glasses or whatever it might be. And somebody says, wow, I really like that. What do you immediately say? You say, somebody gave it to me. And so you are giving the credit to whom? You're giving the credit to the giver. There's no credit to you whatsoever. What did you do? Nothing. You simply received it. And so there's no boasting on your part. Rather, there's boasting in the one who gave it to you. Now, the single biggest and most common error when it comes to this question of salvation from God is this, that many, and in my experience, most people think that the way to have salvation from God is to do something. And if you look at the various religions around the world, you will find that generally they are prescriptions to do something. To check off certain boxes and to fulfill certain obligations. And then the idea is, then you will be able to gain God's favor. Now, if we could do that, then grace would no longer be grace. And if you look at Romans, if you go back... To Romans, and I failed to write the page number here. We're going to look at two texts of Romans, and somebody can help me out with the page number. Romans 11, verse 6. Anybody who has the version that, that's uh, 
available, Romans 11.6. Listen to how Paul argues here. He says, If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's one or the other. So, if it's by works... If it's by effort on our part, then it's no longer grace, because those are two different principles. Now, it might look here like grace and works are contrasting, and they are. But there's a deeper reason why grace and works are contrasting, because they are different principles. Now, I want want you to look at one more verse, Romans 4. It'll be a few pages uh, prior to the one we just looked at. Romans chapter 4, verse 4. And here we're going to get at the, the principle that's underneath works. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So, you go to your job, you work, and you get paid. And when you get your paycheck, maybe you're courteous and you say, thank you. But you really don't need to. Why not? You work for it. They're not doing you any favor. This is not a gift. It is yours by right. It is an obligation. And you see, this is the contrast here. A gift is not a question of obligation. But working and receiving wages, the principle is obligation. And so when we say, when Paul says, he says, if it's by works, it's no longer by grace, because then it becomes a question of obligation. And there's no reason to give thanks for it because you earned it. And he's saying, no, it cannot be that way. Why? Because dead people can't do works. They can't do anything. You see, this is ruled out from the beginning. If Paul's description of humanity is accurate, and it is, I think, looking inside ourselves and looking around at our world, we can, we can see that it, it is, then we realize it can't be why works, because dead people can't do any works. It has to be by grace, free, a gift of God. Now, the results of that, let's go back to our Ephesians text, the results. That's the answer to the question of why. And think about how beautiful this is. Why did God save His people? Because He wanted to? Because He's rich in mercy? Because He's gracious? Because He's loving? Because He's kind? And that's what we're saying when we affirm grace alone. And what are the results? Look at verse 7. Here's the so that. Here's the end game. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is so that in the coming ages uh, humans and, and angels will be, will be poking each other with their elbows and saying, get a load of this. Can, can you c- conceive of what God did? Yes, we're talking about for those, those dead humans, the Jews and the Gentiles, who were given over to their, their passions of the, the body and the mind and following the course of this world. Yes, to those. 
To those God showed His mercies. To those God showed His kindness. To those God showed His love. To those God poured out His grace. Can you believe it? That's so that the rest of the ages, for all of eternity, will be glorifying God as the one who is gracious to whom He is gracious, shows mercy to whom He shows mercy, and is kind to whom He shows kindness. That's one result, God's glory. And the other is, in verse 10, so that we will walk differently. Verse 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've seen that before, right? Walk? It was in verse 2. It said that we were walking according to our trespasses and sins and the course of this world and the prince of the air, etc., etc. And now he's saying the result of this, the result of God's grace is that we will walk differently. Now, he's not taking away with one hand with what he already has given. He's not, he, he already said, if you look at verse 8, he says, it's not by works. We are not saved by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And now he's saying we are saved for good works. But this is very important to, to distinguish. It's not because of, it's not by, it's not by means of, it's not on the basis of, it's not an account of, but it is unto, it is for, it is as a result, there will be good works in those who are in Christ and united to Him by faith. Those who have been and are being saved in Jesus Christ. But this is not to, not to take away from God's grace. It is rather to magnify God's grace. Because it is saying that God's grace is so great that it can not only give life, raise from the dead, seat with Christ, save from wrath and save from sin and save from destruction and save from uh, the course of this world and save from the clutches of the evil one, but it can transform those who were walking in deadness and now are walking in newness of life. It can cause people even like us to walk in good works. And if it's the result, it cannot be the cause If we say somebody is born for greatness, we don't confuse that with they were born because of their greatness, right? It's the end result. It's not the cause. If we say somebody is studying to be a chef, we don't confuse that with he's studying because he is a chef. The cause and the result are two separate things. Works are not the cause. Works are the result. Works are the result of God's grace. Now... If salvation is a gift of God, is there nothing we can do to receive it? Well, it turns out that there is, but it's not a work like we usually think of works. We've already read what that is that we must do to receive it. If you look at verse 8 again, For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. 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 That's the one thing that we must do in order to receive it. We must have faith. We must believe. We must trust. But think about what faith is. Think about what trust. Maybe that's an easier way to see it. Think about what trust is. It's the exact opposite of working, isn't it? It's resting. It's relying. It's receiving. It is not doing. And so this grace, 
which will be praised for all the ages, we receive through faith alone. But you need to come back next week because that's the third motto. Scripture alone, grace alone, and next week, by God's grace, we'll look at faith alone. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for the riches of Your kindness, of Your grace and love and mercy to all who believe in Christ. And I pray, O God, that if any here is continuing to strive to gain Your favor, that he or she would give up that futile pursuit and trust in Christ alone. And those of us who have trusted in Christ alone, may we walk day by day in those good works that you have prepared for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.